0: to Day 2 Cloud. Today's going to be, a, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Might be a hot button topic. Uh, we're talking about Web3, but not just Web3 in the abstract sense. We're going to get down to what it actually means to the infrastructure engineer. And we have a special guest, Josh Neuroth. He's a head of product at Anchor, who is a service provider for hosting nodes that run blockchain. So he might know a thing or two about a thing or two, right, Ethan? He knows more than a thing or two about a thing or two. He knows a lot. He knows a lot about the culture, the environment, use
1: cases, uh, system requirements, and so on, along with all the terminology that if you've been reading about Web3 and your head swimming because all the jargon is just kind of drowning you, Josh can clarify all of that for you.
0: Yeah, and I like jargon, but my goodness, there is, there's a lot of jargon. So if Web3 is piquing your interest, enjoy this episode with Josh Noorath, head of product at Anchor. Well, Josh Newroth, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Before we get into the topic at hand, why don't you introduce yourself to the fine audience out there?
2: Thank you. Yeah, my name is Josh Newroth. I lead the product team over at Inker, which is a Web3 infrastructure company. And I've spent most of my career in product management, uh, last seven or eight years kind of geeking out in infrastructure, working at infrastructure as a service companies and you know, building solutions for some of the world's leading networks and companies.
0: Okay. Well, that dovetails nicely into the conversation we want to have because we wanted to talk about the infrastructure side of web three and understand from like an engineering standpoint what's required to run Web3 components. So mm-hmm. let's let let's get started with some fundamentals. Ethan and I are mostly Web3 newbies. We don't we don't know that much. We've done a little bit of reading. Uh, but you know, terminology is very important here. So what does web three actually mean to you?
2: Yeah, abso- absolutely. So I would think about web three at this point in time in early 2022 is not just uh, a technical system, it's also kind of becoming a cultural movement, as we've seen You know, athletes and celebrities talking about it, the NFTs are everywhere now. So on the cultural side of Web3, I would simply say that Web3 is a way to, to organize or coordinate large groups of people in a way that is fair and meaningful to them. Um, And then on the technical side, you know, Web3 is really using blockchain technology to build a distributed and a decentralized system that, you know, is is essentially everywhere in in the world. Okay. And I think we're going to focus more on the technical aspects because yeah, as the yeah.
0: cultural aspects are a little fraught at the moment. Yeah, <laughs>
2: to say the least.
0: <laughs> uh, but interestingly, so the first thing that you picked out was decentralized, but the other, mm. the other two big terms that I tend to hear associated with Web3 are blockchain and cryptocurrency. Are those necessarily tied to Web3? Or are they all kind of one
2: package? Hmm. Well, the web, yeah, Web three is definitely using the blockchain. Um, I'd say cryptocurrency is just a small sliver of what Web three is. So the uh, I think the database, the decentralized database is really the, at the heart of it. And so essentially what we have in Web three is we have something called the distributed ledger. Think about it as a database that is maintained by, you know, nodes all across the network servers that are running the database. And that database is kind of public to whoever anyone can view it at any point. And there's applications and different use cases that can be built on that database. And so if you think about it, like where does crypto come into that? It's very similar. Like when you log into your checking account at your bank. And you see the balance in your checking account there's some database that that bank is running right Um, that says you have x amount of money right and then every time you use your debit card that 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 database detracts or subtracts you know some uh, some amount from that right and that's effectively uh, how crypto is using the blockchain right and so web3 is 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 something that is uh kind of living on the blockchain right but it can or cannot include crypto right like that's just a piece of it
1: now you said the blockchain several times Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. in in reality there is more than one blockchain i could be participating in right
2: (laughs) That's absolutely right. You know, today we see, um, a, a, you know, there's dozens of blockchains. There's probably hundreds if you go down the long tail and look at you know all the ones that are out there. But some of the most common ones that you may have heard of in the news are are like Solana, Ethereum. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a blockchain too, but Bitcoin is a lot different from some of these other chains.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, I think Ethereum is probably the one that people are mm. most familiar with because I think that's kind of what the whole <laughs> NFT craze was mostly using, right?
2: Yeah, so let me let me dive into a little bit about the technical, you know, the technical details here. So so Bitcoin was essentially the world's first blockchain. It uses something called proof of work. Which we, you guys, are probably familiar with the concept of miners that are using all sorts of electricity to process the next block. Right? We're using like one percent of the world's electricity or more now for Bitcoin. But Bitcoin's kind of—I'm uh, going to offend some people by saying this—but it's kind of a dumb blockchain in a sense. Like it's just used for storing uh, this. This basically who has the big, What wallets contain Bitcoin? Now Ethereum at the moment is still using the proof of work. It still has the mining uh, infrastructure, but it's moving to something called proof of stake. And what makes Ethereum different from Bitcoin is the concept of a smart contract, right? So in uh, intelligence that essentially lives out there in the network. Can you expand on that? So what do you mean by yeah. it
0: lives on the network?
2: Yeah. So in Ethereum and, and these newer proof of stake uh, based blockchains, it's almost like a program, a script, can live out there as part of the database. And when certain conditions are met in the network, that script will auto execute, right? And so that's what makes some people refer to Ethereum as a global supercomputer, because it's not just about who has, who has Ethereum and who's spending Ethereum on something or the cryptocurrency. It's also about programmatically executing code or logic in the network when some condition is met.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so that would kind of be like when I had SQL triggers back in the mm. day on my SQL database, something <laughs> happened and that would you know, have a trigger run to execute a program. Yeah. But the program doesn't, well, I guess the program kind of also does live in the database, doesn't it? So yeah, and that way it, the two are very similar.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. So if you think about it like the if then logic, like you could write a smart contract and you upload the smart contract, you pay some gas fee or some ethereum to upload the smart contract and then that smart contract lives across that distributed ledger, the distributed database and when its conditions are met that are programmed into it will execute something. So people have found, you know, lots of ways to use these smart contracts, but it's really interesting from my point of view, what kind of uh, makes me excited about is is this logic that lives out there in the network, right? And so you know people can see they can do smart contract audits. They can you know see what's about to happen on the network when certain conditions are met. And there's just so many use cases that can kind of branch off from that
0: right? Because a, a pretty important condition, and this is something that you brought mm. up earlier, is that the blockchain is public. That's right. Anybody can read and parse through the items that are stored on the blockchain.
2: Yep, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, people are using smart contracts now to auto invest digital assets or to buy digital assets. So, you know, uh, I said earlier that in the cultural side of things, you know, people are excited about things being fair. And so what I meant by that is when you have a smart contract that is auditable by anyone, Anyone can can read it and see what's about to happen. Say you promised your community that they'd get 10% of ownership of something, You know that can be written into a smart contract. So it's auto-executed, right? And that's why I think people are excited is because it brings a level of transparency that we really haven't seen before in the internet.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> my brain is already <laughs> filling up. <laughs> oh my god. okay. So another term... That I've heard is a d app. yes. what what is a d app? can you can you maybe explain a little bit and then give a few potential use cases for that type of application?
2: Sure. So a, a d app is a little the term itself really means a decentralized application. Um, that is a little bit misleading in its from a generic definition because many d apps, use a traditional web stack to run their applications. They're browser-based web applications. They're using JavaScript. They're using maybe they're even hosting on Amazon Web Services or Versal or, you know, they're using a standard, it's a standard web okay, web application. What makes it a D app, at least in the in in from a technical standpoint, is that the user authentication is being done um, by the blockchain or by a blockchain. So You'll see in the D app that there is instead of a login button where you log in maybe with your Google, uh, you know, user account or your Twitter user account or your email and password, you connect your wallet. And so this is something that is really interesting, and I think, is a defining factor of the Web3 movement is this login with wallet system that's being built. And so um, you guys are familiar with like, you know, logging into a server with your SSH key and you know with a wallet you have a public and a private key pair so i have a public wallet address and my my ethereum wallet starts with zero x and then the whole hash right and then i have my private key my private seed key which no one else knows and so if you think about the wallet then it's almost like ssh for the for for all these applications
0: right okay so in, in rather than having uh a, an email address and a password that's stored somewhere in that system. All it has is the public key. And then if I, you know, send it, uh, well, I won't send it the private key, but I would, you know, somehow match the two up That's right. But proof of my identity. And the D app doesn't actually have any additional information about me and can't leak my password by accident. Correct. It's exactly. Actually- exactly.
2: So you authenticate it through your wallet and then that DApp is going to know from my public key that I've authenticated to their application, right? And then there's information that that DApp can see about me, maybe a list of the transactions I've completed in the past, what NFTs I own, you know, things like that. Um, but it, I think uh, effectively a DApp is just a way to say there's an application that's using this decentralized identity in it, and that's the user authentication.
1: Uh, So there's nothing necessarily magical about the application itself. If we're used to client server architecture, Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's still an executable or microservices or whatever it is running somewhere and the whole magic and why we call it a DIP truly it's just tied to wallet based authentication.
2: Yes. In most cases. Now there are, there are people working on decentralized cloud infrastructure where they're kind of pooling together compute resources to build like, a user ran and operated version of AWS. There, and I guess you could say that that's a D you could build a D app or on that as well. But for most D apps that you see at least today, the D apps are are running a standard web architecture with microservices and just the user authentication is happening um, through, you know, to a blockchain and in that decentralized authentication.
0: Right and and part of that I think correct me if I'm wrong but because of the decentralized nature mm. of the blockchain and also how long it takes to execute a transaction it, that that's not really suitable as a general purpose database it's really just for very specific types of transactions
2: yeah that's a that's a I think a criticism of where the technology is at right now so in proof of stake every time you do a write to the database to the distributed ledger you need to pay something called a gas fee right? The gas fee is what is the economic mechanism that maintains that, you know, the the blockchain in the system. And so, you know, in Ethereum at the moment, gas fees are very expensive to do, to send a transaction, you're looking at a 20 to $30 gas fee at the moment. And that fluctuates up, that goes up and down right now on other blockchains like Solana, the gas fee is like less than a penny. So, you know, you have different blockchains that are addressing the gas fees, um, and some of them are on, on some of the blockchains. the The cost is approaching zero. So, you know, if you think about all the cost that goes into running a standard database, you need the you need servers, you need DevOps, you need you know standard infrastructure. You're effectively getting to leverage all of that that's that, that the blockchain's running just by paying the gas fees. So I think as gas fees goes down, there's a lot of people working on solving that problem. We'll see greater enterprise and you know user adoption of these systems.
1: When you talk about those gas fees, you you couch them as actual dollars versus cryptocurrency uh, denominated. Yes yes is that is that what you meant or did you mean it's some fraction of you know proof of work or something that you're more or less penalized for
2: well i think you know you they, the gas fees are they are in the native token of the network but from because of those there's so many blockchains now people still use the us dollar as a way to kind of comparing and relating Okay. uh you know the the economic cost of doing transactions right and so you're right like a gas fee is like point zero zero one ethereum or whatever it is uh today and that fluctuates every day but you know most people what what is meaningful to most people is what it's costing them in their fiat you know in their their what's what yeah. costing their making bank account
1: right which which fluctuates widely depending on what's happening in the markets on any given week. yes exactly. All right, Josh, so we have an idea of infrastructure and what's happening here, the decentralized nature and such. But man, I have all this functionality in Web 2.0. I mean, this, this is stuff <laughs> we can do today pretty much, I mean, yeah, there's centralized banks behind mm. it and there's centralized uh, major cloud services, the, you know, the big three and, and many other companies coming up with their cloud infrastructure. Well, uh, What am I doing here? Am I going to, is this going to fundamentally change how I interact with the web? If I go the web three way, I'm not, I haven't got the thing yet. That's like, yes, I'm excited. I want to
2: go web three. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And I think, I think there's a lot of people in that boat, right. That are, uh, even have a high degree of skepticism for, for where this is going to go. Um, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, I think some of the, the themes that are kind of driving maybe. This like psych- excitement that's out there. So, you know, in Web two, there's a there's frankly two different business models that have worked, right? You have your advertising driven business model, which is what Google and Facebook, you know, use, and then you have your subscription model, pay as you go, usage based, or standard subscription. Netflix, AWS, you know, LinkedIn Premium, right? You have these different subscriptions, and you know, there's early on in the web there was other business models that were kind of tried. But there wasn't really the technology to allow those business models to work. And so what Web3 is doing, I think, in in primarily is it's bringing a new a new business model to the table. One where your users of your applications can share in the ownership. Right. And they can be there's frankly on the Internet of money that can be, you know, paid to them for doing different things, right? So if you think about it, you know, you have credit card infrastructure is predominantly used in web Uh two, but there isn't a very, there's just not the best integration. Like if you're like, think about this, if you're um, a contributor to some website like Wikipedia, right? And, you know, are you gonna pay, are you gonna send them out a payout? um you know to their bank account every time they contribute something or is it volunteer base. like there's 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 not really there hasn't been a like a native way in the web t- from an economic standpoint to pay people and that's really what web3 is bringing to the table is that economic system
1: so you're saying someone can pay in cryptocurrency we're participating in the same blockchain and web3 infrastructure is going to make it easier for me to uh, pay Ned in some crypto because I really liked that blog post and learned a lot.
2: Yeah. and But I think it goes a lot further. So there isn't really a way in Web 2 for machines to pay other machines, right? Hmm. And so that is a really interesting use case that I think is very early right now in Web 3. But when we think about systems being able to incentivize other systems economically and read the entire database, that is a really interesting thing. Like like I don't know, maybe there's an API integration that's happening between two different systems. You know today that would be almost impossible to to have machines you know manage that. like right? there you have to connect to someone's bank account. you have to read it. like there's there's so many different things there that that make it very difficult. But when everything's out there on the blockchain, and these machines can read it and and like i said earlier with smart contracts execute code based on certain conditions you have a system where machines can incentivize other machines you know without human involvement
1: and when you say incentivize i mm-hmm. interpret that to mean from my very nascent reading on web3 that we're talking about participating in the blockchain and doing work or whatever the version of work is for that blockchain to earn tokens and the more tokens right. you have that's your incentive right
2: Yes absolutely, yep so you can earn partial you can earn a fraction of a token, you know, like you don't have to have like one bitcoin or one ethereum. you can have you know zero point zero 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 one of that right and so you know there's there's ways to there's ways to do that, so I think like we're 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 very early in that, but people have been talking about this idea of kind of a connected world, a fourth industrial revolution where we have sensors and we have, you know, machines connecting and talking to each other, whether it's self-driving cars or data. And what's kind of held that back is that those systems can't really talk to each other today unless there's a lot of manual integration of these systems. And that's where I see, you know, blockchain networks helping with that.
1: Well, you're talking about a protocol that's going to facilitate easy communications machine to machine here. Um, but I think there's another challenge, Josh, which is the just simply the number of blockchains that are out there, the number of token systems that you can participate in. Yes, ethereum, yes, Bitcoin, Solana. Th- these are the big ones, but, Every system is unique, just like we have a number of global currencies uh, distributed by various countries. We have a similar challenge today. So it feels like almost like you got to place your bet on something, but there's, mm-hmm. I, what are we up to? Hundreds of cryptocurrencies? I don't think it's thousands. Yeah. Maybe it's even thousands. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it it is thousands now. Most people are only probably exposed to the top 50 or the top 100, but yes, we are in the thousands at this point.
1: So if i want to be incentivized to earn a token on a particular blockchain i got i got to place a bet and uh hope that i'm earning tokens in a system that is going to be ultimately globally recognized so that i'm <laughs> i'm earning value in the right system that enough people have put their trust in that it has value so they can do exchanges one to another
2: yes yes and that's and, and you know platforms like anchor are working on on making that mul- what we call a multi multi-chain um interoperability easier right and so there are solutions that programmatically you know you can take um payment in one token and then you know trade it or swap it for for something else and 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 track all of that again very early days on i think on these but we do see that most of the adoption is happening in a, you know around fifteen different blockchains right now, which is a lot still. But you have Ethereum, Solana, Binance Smart Chain. Um, I've seen Phantom, Polygon are kind of the name brands that that most applications and DApps have really started to integrate with, right? And so there's long there's a long tail of all these blockchains. Think about it as like a programming language where, you know, JavaScript is prob JavaScript and Python are probably the most common languages now used out there in the Web. But, you know, in other days there were different ones, you know, Cobalt, C++, you know, and it's very similar with blockchains is that I think, you know, as a as a developer in this space, you can pick the chain which works best for your community. You can pick the chain that works best, you know, for your economic mechanism. and you know go from there and potentially integrate others as you need them later on but there's nothing stopping the big guys
1: from getting in and starting their own blockchains and trying to capitalize on this which i mean google just announced this they're they're hiring people they got a blockchain division or whatever they called it so what does that mean for the culture of decentralization
2: yeah absolutely well every blockchain has the trade-offs. So Solana has gotten some criticism because it's a little bit more centralized than Ethereum, but it also has a lot higher performance. And so I think everyone can pick the, you know, those that really care about the decentralized movement can pick something like Ethereum. Of course, there's higher gas fees, it's a slower network, but you do have this very decentralized system. And so um, being that blockchain is a decentralized or a distributed ledger, it, there are enterprise blockchains that are starting to emerge, and uh, many of them are essentially controlled. But I think a lot of those same tenants are still prevalent in those, like the transparency, right? Anyone being able to authenticate transactions and see what's happening. So, you know, there's a, frankly, there's going to be a scale of very decentralized systems and very centralized systems, and they're going to leverage a lot of the same technology, but it really ends up being like, who's in control and where is it going? And so, you're yeah.
1: describing a world, Josh, where the principle is the same across all the blockchains, and I, as a consumer, would have my wallet, and that wallet, I wouldn't have 15 wallets, one for each blockchain I'm participating in, or, or, or would I? It sounds like I could have one wallet that participates in multiple blockchains.
2: Yes. So, so predominantly now we have something called um, on the Ethereum network. We have something called the Ethereum Virtual Machine. It's a, frankly the software that runs the network. And all these other blockchains like Polygon, Arbitrum, Phantom are what's called EVM compatible or Ethereum virtual machine compatible, which means I can have one wallet address that I can use any of these blockchains. Now, Solana at the moment is not EVM compatible, so I need a separate wallet app for Solana. right? But, but there is a lot of work going into making these compatible and essentially having like a super wallet app where I have one wallet and can use any blockchain.
0: So yeah, you have that explosion of initial creativity, and then the standardization starts rolling in. That's right, that's right. And that's when I think enterprises start to become more comfortable with a concept or an idea is when standardization rolls in the the second generation. Because right now, I, when I think about Web three, it seems very bleeding edge. It seems where like when people were talking about Kubernetes five years ago, it was it was the first movers. It was the bleeding edge folks who were doing it. To what degree are you seeing enterprises exploring the Web3? Mm. Are, uh, are they?
2: Yeah. Well, I can tell you from, from our work at Anchor, we're an infrastructure provider and we have RFPs from almost every major financial institution. Hmm. So they're, they're built, just like you said earlier, like Google's building a Web3 team. Um, the payment providers, the credit card providers, the standard you know US-based banks, they all have a Web3 strategy. They're tasking their infrastructure teams and their software engineering teams figuring out, you know, what to do. How do we get into this? How is it going to disrupt us? And they're, they're still early days. In fact, I'd say the last six months has really the, the second half of 2022 or I'm sorry, 2021 was really when we started seeing that traction. Um, but you know, they're, they don't want to get too far behind in this because it's a note of, they, they see it as a disruptor to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, so yeah, it's still early days, but they, I'm sure they're you know spinning up some kind of pilot project or, or Skunkworks thing, one of their development groups.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and gaining the resources on their team so they know how to you know work with this technology.
1: Now we're talking about enterprises that are you know putting RFPs out there because they're interested in this, Josh. If I am an infrastructure architect or a cloud engineer working for one of these companies. Mm. What should I know about Web three so that I am properly informed I'm participating in the conferences uh, appropriately?
2: Yeah, so a couple things. So on the infra- if you're an infrastructure uh, professional, you know what we see predominantly is you need to connect to the blockchain. You need to start being able to query um, and look at information. And to do that, you either need to run your own node which is the node is just an application that runs on a server that connects and, and operates the blockchain or you need to w- work with a, a node as a service provider like anchor and there's you know um we have Would many minor be another name for node no 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 so in proof of remember we talked a little bit about um the consensus mechanism for different blockchains so right. Bitcoin, actually, if you, everyone's familiar with Bitcoin miners, I think, but lesser known is that you know, if you want to process a transaction in Bitcoin, you need something called a Bitcoin full node. The same goes with Ethereum, where Ethereum has in version one of Ethereum, we have miners version two, we have validators that are the block creators, but you need something called a full node to query information on the blockchain, to send transactions, any kind of development you're doing you need a node that can pull information off the blockchain. And that node is just a standard um, application that runs on a web server. You can launch one yourself with the open source documentation that's out there, or you can use a provider like Anchor to, to do that for you.
0: Okay. Okay. So we've got a few different node types that are participating in the network. Size of a node am I talking about here? Am I running this on a Raspberry Pi or do I have to buy like a $3,000 graphics processing engine to run it all?
2: The requirements change depending on the blockchain. We'll talk, let's talk about Ethereum. Ethereum is you could run a node on a Raspberry Pi. It's the performance is gonna be probably terrible. It's possible (laughs) if you're trying to do something yourself as a a hobbyist, you definitely could do that. Uh, For us at Anchor, we use kind of a standard configuration of of a, a standard enterprise server. We use an AMD um, EPIC as our CPU. You know, 128 gigabytes of RAM and then NVMe storage. And you're looking at to run at least a full node. You definitely will need um, at least a terabyte of uh, storage. You know, to to store the latest transactions. Now, if you want to get everything and store a complete copy of the blockchain on your node, you're going to turn it, you're going to turn your node into something called archive mode and then you need to have a lot of storage. So in our we have up to 30 terabytes of NVMe per server, you know, to do that. But we're using a lot of NVMe NVMe storage now just to get that speed, you know, that fast read and write. But again, think of it as a database server. So you need the the fast IO is what really matters. I can talk to you all day about our servers I
1: mean, blockchain is essentially a math problem. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you need something with some heft. Putting things in memory is going to help, you know, reducing IO swaps is going to help. Um, but ultimately, even if it's just a node and you're not mining, there's math that's got to be done to validate what you're seeing on the blockchain. And And again, Josh, you mentioned archive mode if i want an ent- copy of the entire blockchain i'm needing terabytes and that storage requirement is going to increase the more transactions that are committed to the blockchain
2: that's absolutely right yes so we've seen you know the ethereum archive at the moment is around i think it's around nine terabytes as of you know this month and that is going to just keep increasing over time because Think about this database is like a stack of Lego bricks with a new block that block contains transactions It's just ever increasing. So the requirements do go up all the time.
0: Is that a long-term problem that can be solved with a new version of a blockchain? Because I'm thinking, you know, if Ethereum sticks around for 10 more years, are we going to have enough storage to even hold the and Joe Average is not going to have enough storage to hold correct this
2: is a pro, this is a big topic in the community right now around what to do there's there's protocols like graph protocol that are pulling this data and and indexing it and you you can load up graphql and quickly query information um, there's node providers like Anchor that are addressing this too. but uh, yeah, there's there's many solutions out there. Some are open source that are being worked on to make these requirements less. But um, I think this kind of goes back to the as as usage grows right the the requirements are are definitely going to grow and so you have like solana like let's let's talk about the, some of the trade offs so ethereum it's global network of ethereum at the moment is limited to 20 transactions per second across the whole world all the users so that doesn't sound like a lot, right? Oh, no, it's slow. Very <laughs> slow, right? But you have the node requirements are, like you said, you could run one on a Raspberry Pi. And so most average user does not need a complete copy of the blockchain. They're going to use like a, a service provider or a protocol, like the graph protocol to kind of pull that information. But, you know, to speed up the blockchain, to get that performance, those node requirements are going to increase. So with Solana... We see you need a very powerful server. I mean I'm buying servers with 512 gigabytes of RAM uh, right now for Solana right And so the average person is not going to be able to afford that on a you know a monthly basis to run a Solana node.
1: I mean the problem here is consensus, Josh is that it that is all the nodes need to come to consensus that this block is valid and so there's a lot of math that's got to happen. If you're running it on a Raspberry Pi, it's going to take a lot longer to do that math than if you're running it on some beastly machine.
2: Yeah, that's a simple, that's a high-level way of describing it, essentially, but you're simple right. Simple is fine. You can call yeah. me simple, Josh. I can take I got this. That's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've seen, um. what I what I do want to point out is we've seen the best performance on bare metal. So early days, Anchor, we started using virtualization, you know, virtual machines. We were running nodes and VMs, and as of now, we've almost completely cut over you're running on single tenant bare metal, which we've seen the best performance on for sure.
0: Okay. And is that partially because of the software itself, it's able to run multi-threaded across the whole processor. So some of the gains you would normally have from virtualization don't really apply.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing about blockchain is you have, the blockchain itself is redundant. So if you cut out a node, you know, the blockchain itself is fine. So as long as I have, if I'm, you know, what we do at Anchor is we have a load balancer with many nodes, if one of those nodes fails, it's fine. Or, you know, we just load balance the traffic or the, the read queries across other nodes. And so, you know, in, because the, the, the resiliency and the redundancy is built into the network itself, you don't need all of the traditional like enterprise level um, redundancy that you get in virtual machines right so right so the yeah. things that
0: i would do like taking snapshots of the virtual machine for backup and and recovery or even replicating between the nodes well blockchain's already replicating that's yes that's already taken care of for me and
2: so Exa- t- exactly exactly so, so we've why? we've tried to cut out all unnecessary redundancy in our server configurations and just to to basically you spend that trade-off on performance so uh-huh. you know a lot of enterprise grade servers have like two power supplies or even two cpus or you know redundant you know raid one or you know some kind of configuration like that we put we put our disk our nvme disk in raid zero which yeah. obviously if one of the drives goes down it's gonna you know uh, corrupt the the volume but that's fine for us like we want that performance and we can we can do that because of what you just said because the the redundancy is built into the network
1: it's better to spend money on more nodes and scale out rather than make sure that this one server is so precious it can never go down sure it can go down you've lost that compute capacity but you've, you've you're saving the money and throwing it at more nodes out there
2: yeah yeah exactly now there is an exception to this and that's when you are running what's called a validator and so most, most uh, engineering teams that are tasked with looking at you know Web3 strategy are going to need to use what the full notes, which is what I just said, where you don't need that redundancy. But if you are a financial company and you're tasked with you know running some validator, which most financial companies wouldn't run them themselves. But the validator is the block creator. And why is that why would finance why would a traditional financial enterprise be tasked with that? so there's in the proof of stake system you can you essentially put a security deposit onto the validator the block creator and then you have passive earnings that the network pays out to you right and so you can get you know five six seven percent apr from the network by running a validator and so the validator you want the redundancy you want it to always be online because you're earning some kind of financial asset for running it mm-hmm. and in that case you do probably want the virtualization you want the redundancy and all the traditional um i guess enterprise requirements for security and redundancy apply in that case
1: you said you're getting the performance out of bare metal okay in a world of containers and virtual machines and kubernetes it sounds like Web3 doesn't really play there, or, or, or does it? Do we see cloud native and Kubernetes kind of infrastructure employed at all?
2: We've tried it. We we did a, we did built a whole Kubernetes Docker container-based deployment process for our full nodes. And again, we just didn't get the performance that we needed out of that system. And so we switched to running our nodes directly um, on Ubuntu, on bare metal we saw have seen by far the best performance using amd um the amd cpus on that do
1: you remember what the penalty was that you paid for uh running it well basically abstracted uh in a container
2: uh more than more than 30 or 40 percent the thing is is that when you get into these we uh, so so in 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 blockchain the most important requirement in most of the chains, I'm taking a very generalized rule here. Is your disk I/O, your I/O ops, right? And so we've mm. seen um, in in our Binance Smart Chain configuration, we've consistently needed more than 10,000 I/O ops, right? And so we've we've tried very fast uh, network attached storage to not get performance. Um, the virtualization D sometimes decreases the IO ops as well. So we ended up just getting NVMe on the actual box and just putting single tenant nodes, one server, one node with its own NVMe. And that was the best solution for us.
0: Hmm. It's one of those cases where it kind of reminds me of high performance computing, where they take a lot of the same approaches because they know that there's a performance penalty for every abstraction you layer onto things. That's right. So, the closer you get to bare metal, the better the performance. And, uh, disk IO especially is, is the case cuz it it doesn't have to time slice the IO if there's really just like one process hogging it all up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, we've we've been so happy with our NVMe based storage, but the thing is is, you know, we've had to we had to go build our own server because there wasn't, you know, no one was selling 30 terabytes of NVMe on a box, right? Like we went <laughs> went to Equinix, we went to you know, all the bare metal providers and no one had that. So we've had to kind of custom order that and build in some cases. Now we're doing our own co-location as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I would imagine that the newer form factors for SSDs and NVMe has paid, has paid off for you. That, that sort of ruler format that Intel uh, introduced that really lets you pack in you know possibly a petabyte of storage in one u if, if you want to spend the money for it
2: yeah we haven't had to go that far yet and again those solutions are a little overkill at the moment for us but we've had great success with just the you know super micro boards put the amd epic in there it has to some fast ram and and then your your nvme drives Gotcha. you
1: guys didn't try fiber channel for storage that's a that's actually a serious question um, we
2: we <laughs> we've tried so many different things um like i said the, the best trade-off between price and cost and performance was just standard NVMe. Hmm. Um, finding a server chassis <laughs> that had you know 10 drives or so and I mean, you and know put even, those in raid zero
1: running a fiber channel network would add a lot of complexity and cost to the solution for sure but i think you would potentially get the throughput guarantees you're looking for uh, with again the trade off of complexity and cost, but yeah. yeah, NVMe, I understand exactly why you are where you are. It's just you're in this world now of needing to manually rack constantly and then add the node to the network and you know, and all the rest of that. So it feels like architecturally a step backwards from what we've been doing all these years where we've extracted away the hardware as much as possible, repackaged things into containers, and just made it. I, I don't care about the hardware. Just rack it, add it to a Kubernetes cluster, and you know, boom, throw the workload on it, and we're done. Walk away, move on to the next yeah. thing.
2: Yeah, so the other thing too is that there's something very important called block height. So it, when you run a node, your node has to stay in sync in real time with all the other nodes on the network in the peer-to-peer system. And so the term for that is called block height. And so you need enough CPU, you need enough RAM, you know, and, and then this speed to stay at block height and that's the most important thing right so you're constantly streaming information you know to these other nodes now most networks the actual network requirements really aren't that significant i mean you're looking at i think the average I see is around 50 megabits per second per node mm-hmm. so you know you you don't need like tons of bandwidth to run this stuff however right now like Blockchain, you know, all the full nodes are completely based on layer three, using Internet protocol to connect to each other, but we're starting to see a few interesting use cases for building kind of like layer two-based you know, VLANs between our nodes and, and whatnot.
0: That yeah, I could see where you know, at least in terms of you do need that extra network capacity for some reason, that would be helpful. But because these are all single-tenant machines, you don't really need the network isolation that you would typically use a VLAN for. Right. Now I did have a question in here about using the public cloud to host nodes mm-hmm. for web3 uh-huh. but based off of what you're telling me it sounds like that would be cost prohibitive for most cases. <laughs>
2: well, I think you you always have there's the trade-off of easy the easy button versus doing it yourself, right? So um, a lot of our competitors do host on Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services, almost exclusively. Um, we so there's like an altruistic reason, I think, for us to not host in the public cloud to to help with the decentralization. A lot where a lot of our community members are running our nodes, you know, and we want to do that on the bare metal or in the colo environments, you know, for that reason. But I will say, um, we get a lot higher performance for, you know, a fraction of the cost with bare metal. And so from a technical point of view, it makes a lot of sense for us to stay on bare metal.
1: So yeah. Anchor, you guys are crypto bros and uh, those people <laughs> using the cloud, they're all the button down suits.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of people still love the cloud. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of speculation in our, in our space around who's building like the AWS and crypto and you know, to me, it's like AWS is going to become the AWS of crypto. Eventually, you're going to have a button on AWS or a script on AWS where you can just launch a node, and that's already starting to manifest over there. So, you know, Cloudflare has a Web three strategy as well. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Google does it as well, and so eventually, you know, run, spinning up a blockchain node is going to be as simple as just clicking a button in AWS. Right. I- Azure announced a blockchain, I want to
0: say it was like four years ago, a blockchain service on Azure. Uh, and then they kind of shut it down after a couple of years, I think because it wasn't ready yet. Correct, and, yeah. And I, I got to imagine, you know, once bitten, twice shy, they, they might wait a little while before
2: they have their entree onto, onto the Yeah, the market is still relatively small. Um, I would expect this year to see a lot of announcements from the big cloud providers around their strategies in this. Um, we're kind of at that point, that critical tipping point of mass adoption now and the fact that, you know, their customers are probably asking if they're sending us RFPs, they're definitely sending the cloud hosting providers those RFPs too. So we'll see. We'll see, you know, you follow the money. It's, it's going to happen soon. Great.
0: All right, Josh. Well, let's let's bring this in for a landing. If folks have been listening through the, through the podcast, uh, what are some key takeaways or, or actionable items they could have for, for moving forward?
2: Well, I think the first is that uh, Web3 can feel very daunting when you're starting out, you know? And I think the first thing that the average the average listener should do is create a wallet. So go get, you know, um, there's an open source wallet called MetaMask. It's out there in the Chrome Web Store. MetaMask is just a, web, a wallet client. You can go create a wallet. And, you know, if in a matter of minutes, you get your private key. You should save that um you, there's you can save a paper version of that too to you know put it in your safe you can use a password manager whatever it is but get a wallet um I would recommend the thing that I did early on to just get started is go buy like 20 dollars worth of crypto on Coinbase or something like that transfer it to your your you know MetaMask wallet and then start playing around in the space you know start connecting your wallet to some of these dApps out there there's many D, dApp uh, directories now of all the different applications there's games starting to use wallets and i think just start playing around with the technology maybe mint an nft or something like that and you know and and then if you're a, if you're a sys, a sys admin and you want to play around with a node you know go get a a cheap web server and and launch a node and start playing around with that yeah it sounds like that, at least the hardware requirements for
0: some of the some of the blockchains are not that Prohibitive. So you could start with one of those that that has the lower requirements and just get a feel for it.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't want to run your own server, but you just want to start curling commands in your CLI to, to connect to the blockchain, you can do that with our anchor. At Anchor, we run something called a public RPC which is just a public API endpoint that connects to the blockchain. It's rate limited, you know, so you're not gonna be able to build like a full on production application, you know, but you can find those on our website and, and connect directly to the blockchain and start playing around.
0: Amazing. So if folks wanna know more about you, if they wanna connect up to you, do you have a website,
2: a blog, a Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter is probably the best place. My DMs are open. I love talking to people in the community. It's just at Josh Newroth and I'm pretty responsive on there. Also, I'm on LinkedIn. We'll do LinkedIn private messages too. Not everyone likes that, but I'm available there as well.
0: Awesome, so we'll include those links in the show notes. Josh Newroth, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at day 2 Cloud Show, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.